Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this episode, we're going to demonstrate how everything we know can all be explained with the help of scientific research and theories. From the facts about dieting to the processes of cooking. From analysing the digital impact on society to the future of material science. And from alien invasions to the apocalypse. Our incredible lineup of scientists, authors and books have it covered. First of all, we take a look at football statistics with Chris Anderson and David Sally, authors of The Numbers Game. Whilst analysing statistical data has long been used in American sports, it is something of a revolution in the football world. In this interview, Penguin digital marketer and football fanatic Paul Martinovich asked Chris and David about the subtitle, Why Everything You Know About Football Is Wrong, and whether they were ultimately trying to change the landscape of football. Here is what David Sally had to say. I think we are uh, hoping to challenge a lot of people's perceptions. Obviously, the subtitle is a little hyperbolic. Um, uh, not everything in the book uh, is unanticipated by serious football fans. But we meant the subtitle to be a little provocative and to say that, uh, in some sense, do you really know a truth about football unless it is grounded in some kind of numbers, some kind of evidence, something other than myth and story and anecdote. And to us, you really don't. Uh, so, so one of the reasons the subtitle works is it's as much about how you really know something is true as it is about the truth itself. Uh, and so the book was designed to take apart football, some of the most essential parts, whether it was possession, whether it was defense versus offense, the role of the manager, and really examine them in a critical way and bring as much evidence as we could to find out what the right questions were to ask about, is possession important or not? Does the manager have a significant role in the success of a club? And bring whatever evidence and data we could to gain some traction on answering that, those questions. And I would also add to that that uh, we do believe there are a few conventional myths that are simply not quite right, um, or everything's wrong. Um, so things like um, uh, our focus in football, we, we tend to pay an awful lot of attention to the goals that are scored, and, and we pay an awful lot of attention to, say, strikers, because they're heroic and they, they put us over the top. Um, but is that really warranted? And one of the things that we do point out in the book is that uh, it's easy to, f to, to ball watch. It's easy to lose sight of the fact that there's an awful lot more going on on the field of, of play um, that we don't pay attention to, and, and those things actually are incredibly important and incredibly valuable. So a good example is um, what we call zero is greater than one. A goal not conceded is more valuable to a team over the course of a season in terms of producing points for the team than is a goal scored. In fact, you have to score more than two goals to make up for the value of a clean sheet. Um, and most football fans would sort of say, well, but a goal not conceded is something I can't watch. It never happens. Uh, so I'm not paying attention to that. And, and football has a lot of ways of, of, of only f uh, looking at the things that occur as opposed to the things that don't occur. And it's tough. It's tough to get your head around that. Do you think there will always be a challenge for, for football in that the, the, con the conventional wisdom is to look for something that is there um, rather than something that isn't there? Do you think that hurdle is something that can be overcome or, or not? I think that's, that's a general human problem um, of human psychology. And in fact, we, we discussed some of the research on this, psychological research, um, 
done on this. This is uh, one of the major limitations of our cognitive system uh, that we tend to attend, we, we attend and pay attention to those things that are there as opposed to those things that aren't there, even though in many human interactions or many situations, the things that aren't there are as notable, if not more notable. So this isn't a problem limited to the football world. This is uh, something that you that I would work with um, in terms of consulting or helping business executives have the same kind of problem. Um, so how you overcome it is you try to you try to make people aware of this basic tendency, as you do with a lot of decision biases in life. The first, usually the first and most valuable step is to point out that this is a natural flaw. So Ferguson, in his biography, does learn that, in fact, and does this is at least in, in that one of the versions of his biography, this was one of his greater regrets, that he had gone with this statistic about um, stops, uh, uh, tackles declining over time and, and making too much of it instead of noting what wasn't really there was the fact that, that it wasn't in the numbers that Stapp's positioning had improved over the years, and he was more effective and was being a more effective defender without having to tackle. Uh, so Ferguson is ex an example of somebody who learned from his mistakes. And, and in the book, we hope to give people a, a, a step up by taking them through some of that thinking and trying to point out those instances in football where many things uh, are very important that aren't happening and trying to bring attention of the average fan and supporter to those. And it also relates to, it's, it's sort of a basic cognitive problem we have as humans in processing information and, and assigning uh, causality to, to events. But there's another thing about football I think that's, that's worth po pointing out, and that has to do with how we learn about the game. We learn about the game um, oftentimes by playing it. So there's, there's sort of a traditional way of, of knowing about football that comes from being taught uh, by the people who've gone before us. And, and so it's, it's, it's sort of a conventional wisdom that gets passed on from generation to generation. Um, the other thing is that a lot of times we consume football via television these days, right? And so a lot of, so Match of the Day is popular for a reason, but if you watch Match of the Day, it's not a, it's not like watching a football match. It's actually watching the most unusual situations of the game uh, that happen. Those make the highlight reel. So it's the goals, it's the chances. It's the stuff with the ball, right? And so um, we're taught as consumers of football to look at the ball and only look at the unu truly unusual events. And the goals are actually <laughs> the really unusual event. Um, and that kind of gives you a, a skewed vision of what football really is all about. That was Chris Anderson and David Sally talking about the modern world of football, which is the subject of their book, The Numbers Game. The full interview is on our SoundCloud page if you want to hear more. Coming up, Stephen Emmett holds a mirror up to society to show its negative effect on humankind. But first, we have two influential scientists, Mark Miodovnik and Adam Rutherford, whose books Stuff Matters and Creation analyse life and the material world from its origins all the way to modern inventions and beyond. Together, they compare their theories to scrutinise which materials will shape our future and answer difficult questions such as, is concrete a living organism? So here's Mark Miodovnik starting off by telling us where material science is taking us. So obviously materials have shaped the history of civilization. That's why the ages of civilization are named after them, the Stone Age, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, and so on. And so the question is, what is the future? And what material might 
in a sense, usher in our new future. And people talk about the 20th century in terms of silicon, the age of silicon and the silicon chip, which really has, you know, is responsible for the information revolution that we today shapes our lives in so many ways. The question is, what will the 21st century bring? And I, I think if I was going to bet on anything, I would say that it's to do with um, chipping away at this difference between animate and inanimate worlds, that in the past, materials that we talk about, they're all you know, stuff that we've made, hard, but they're other, they're not living stuff. And now we're starting to get technologies like concrete, like um, composites, which have lifelike qualities. They can heal themselves, they can understand some things that are in the environment and they can respond to them. And so the 21st century, I think, will be at the age of living materials. Well, I agree with that, of course. <laughs> so the second half of, of, of my book, which, which is effectively about biotechnology, the emergence of biotechnology in the last 60 years, but also what, what we're going to do with it. And I think that's in, exactly right. So w w one of the things I say is that uh, the, the first industrial revolution, the 18th and 19th century, was stuff that we mined out of the living world. So it's, um, you know, iron and metals and rock, but also wood and trees and those sorts of things. But they are rendered dead through the action of... of of turning them into useful things. But I think the industrial revolution that has already begun is one based on living things. Uh, that's the technologies that will, will come to define the next few decades, maybe 100 years, are going to be ones that are going to be living cells. Yeah, and I think it's very difficult to predict whether it will be a synthetic approach, as, as, as you describe in your book, um, whether that will win out or whether actually we will... Um, when I say synthetic, I mean synthetic biology. Yeah. So to basically take organisms that already make materials, so organisms make wood, they make polymers, they make resins, they make all sorts of useful things. If we can tweak that, those organisms, we can make you know you know we can make wood with that goes around corners in terms of their grain. We can make wood that is still living when you use it. <laughs> you know we can do these things maybe with synthetic biology, or whether we will completely um, go off the map, as it were, and use and use non-carbon approaches to making a living world. You know, and, and this is essentially where you start talking about concrete that's living. Mm. It's not based on a, on a carbon-based uh, structure. And yet, what do you mean by when you say that concrete's living? Because uh, it, it doesn't qualify as living using the criteria that I go to some lengths to describe in my book. Yes, okay. Yeah, so what, so what do we mean by living? Um, at the moment, you, know, you, you have things that can grow and they can reproduce themselves. And some of those things are made by other organisms, right? So is a, is a beehive a living wax object in the sense that even though bees make it and it's inanimate when we take it out of the hive, mm. it is actually molded and manufactured and, you know, is part of its environment. And you might describe a city like that. You know, it's actually, if you to do a fast forward in time, a video of time lapse of a road or a building, it's constantly being mended. And so the question is, if you then infiltrate smaller things, molecules or little insects that are going to mend a building and they're, they're invisible to the eye, but for all extents purposes, it self heals because of these things live naturally in it. Is that a living building or is that... What is that? You know, I mean, I think those questions are where yeah. the two are going to collide. Yeah, there's not a very interesting discussion about the definitions that, that would, uh, would say that that is not living or it is, is living. But I think you're right in terms of, I, I think that we will see the, the aggregation of lots of technologies and it won't be one thing or the other. It will be 
old school materials combined with modern, newly designed living things, and they will work in consort with each other. I just come from a meeting at UCL where we were talking about um, 3D printing houses. So uh, a, a machine designing a solar-powered machine that would basically print houses in the desert for for um, developing nations. And we were trying to we were trying to think about how you could incorporate biological entities into that so that the, maybe the structures on the outside were um, producing energy or producing something that was that was a commodity that would be useful. Now you know that is a, that is massively pie in the sky at, at the moment. Yeah, but although there are these funguses now that people are making, that which make packaging to, to you know, so this packaging you get in, in the in the post that, that sort of comforts your bit of electronics, you know, or your book as it comes through the post. At the moment, that's synthetic material that's made of um, you know plastic or expanded polythene. Um, but there's now fungus that you can, which will grow it into a shape that is a packaging material, and nice. so. You know, people are crossing this boundary between making organisms that make a material that is that then lives in the world, you know, and replaces a kind of old school material in your words, which I, I can see that. Right. So, so one of the examples I give in the book is is the synthetic biology project that NASA are, are, are investigating at Stanford and Brown in the U.S., uh, which is to engineer bacteria that produce a c- cementing process so they secrete calcite and this calcite acts as a glue and the idea is that transporting materials to build on other planets is extremely costly because they're very heavy right so if you can take bacteria up that will do that for you you add the bacteria to a little mold that contains moon dust or mars dust regolith and over the course of a few hours it secretes a cementing material and you get a little brick out of it they call them rego bricks so that, again, is a perfect example of taking the tools of the natural world, modifying them using synthetic biology in order to create materials which emulate old-school materials but are actually the combination of biology and, uh, and whatever it is that you do. <laughs> but then I think a big question comes up, which is if that is the future, which I think a lot of people are playing with at the moment, and it, it seems to be yielding quite interesting results, there has to be a change in the way that we see materiality and because at the moment we see materiality as something that we that basically we control. It's a very sort of um, patriarchal attitude towards the built environment, which is, you know, we dig stuff up from rocks and mountains, we transform it, and then we plonk it somewhere, and it stays there until we tell it not to. <laughs> mm. And in this new world where, the, where there's probably going to be living organisms making the stuff, rearranging the stuff, self-healing the stuff, it's got some autonomy. It, you know... At some point, we're going to have to give up the idea that we may be in control of when a road goes from A to B. Actually, the road itself may have to decide where it goes. <laughs> and that, I think I think uh, that all the buildings may decide how big they're going to be, how tall they're how, going to be. How does a road make, make that sort of decision? <laughs> well, because it, you see this uh, in – well, I, I'm – you see this in natural systems where you get pathways that, that sort of that, yeah. that are because of the amount of traffic are formed, not because anyone builds them, yeah. but because lots of animals go down a route and then the, the roots of the trees that underpin that pathway mold around it. And and who, who gets to decide why that path but is there? In a sense, though, isn't that the story of civilization that we have always built our cities on rivers which have carved their path through the land based on the, the water's interaction with the the ground and we build on coasts and our, our cities are the result of that exact process are they not I, I'd say if you look around London town you'd see 
a set of roadways and pathways that seems more organic. But if you go to, you know, one of the Enlightenment cities like Barcelona or where Lisbon, where they've been designed yeah. to, to, to have a certain feeling. And, that, and actually, that's not to be underestimated because architecture, clearly the materials of architecture and the spaces do affect, you know, do affect us and we affect them. They are, as I, it's the central thesis of my book, actually, bringing it back to my book. They are an expression of our values. And if we give up our values to a set of organic systems, that is well, what will we become? Because in a way, I feel like our cities are an expression of us, and they say a lot about us. If if they no longer become an expression of us, they're an expression of life in general. Yeah, maybe that's a good thing. But but I think there's there's culture and the society that we're sort of we're taking out of that loop, which which may not which will rebel against that. We won't want that. Or... It's, it's that's really interesting. That's really interesting because the whole conceit of genetic modification and, and synthetic biology, which is kind of its descendant, is to invoke control, to in, invoke control over the, over the, what was the natural world, to, so to modify. I mean, we've been doing it through breeding and farming for 10,000 years to take things that exist in nature but, but add a level of control so that we have exactly the products that we want. And genetic modification and now synthetic biology is taking that level of control to sort of micro-circuitry level so we now have synthetic circuits made of dna that act like transistors what you're saying is almost the opposite is it's almost that we're, there's there there may be a future in which we have to relinquish control because of the technologies that we've invented yeah and that that will have cultural impact on us that will change who we think we are in fact maybe even change the way we behave and i think that's the big that's why these why future looking into the future just in terms of what's possible and, and what the trends are is only half the story, I think, that actually culture has 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 had as much influence on technology and what works and what doesn't work as what's possible as, as the science and the engineering. And that's that's what's so beautiful about it. And also why making looking to the future as we're doing now is is actually quite problematic because you just don't know how culture will evolve, how we all think about ourselves. That was Adam Rutherford and Mark Miodovnik speculating about our material future. Their books Creation and Stuff Matters are both out now. Now, before we head on to the science of food and dieting, we have a shocking message from Stephen Emmett, telling us why time is running out for humanity unless we radically change our behaviour. This is the subject of his widely acclaimed stage performance and book of the same name, 10 Billion. 10 Billion is about us. It's about how we are the driver of every global problem that we face, and about how, as we continue to grow, every one of these problems is continuing to accelerate. Whether it's climate change, loss of ecosystems, resource depletion, resource overuse, consumption, stress on water, agriculture, food, land. And it's about our failure, collective failure, as, our failure as us as individuals, failure of businesses, the failure of governments to both recognise and tackle the full extent of the problem that we will face over this century. I wanted to write 10 billion because I think there is an urgent need to communicate more effectively than is currently being communicated the scale and the nature of the challenges that we're going to face this century, globally. Because I don't think that's happening at the moment. I wanted to do that because I, I'm hoping that the book serves as a catalyst for changing the way people think about these problems, 
and what we need to do to solve them, if we can solve them. I'm not optimistic about the future, it would be fair to say. Scientists often sit on the fence about this kind of question, but I think it's time for scientists to get off the fence. So personally speaking, I think we're That was Stephen Emmett, author of 10 Billion, which is out now. Coming up shortly, we will find out how the digital revolution is transforming our world from the author of The Net Delusion, Evgeny Morozov. But first, Samantha Logan has the diet plan that will trump all other diet plans, which she presents in The 5-2 Fast Diet Cookbook. In this reading of the book, you'll discover just how easy this diet is by simply targeting your body's metabolism. And we've also included a recipe for a delicious low-calorie breakfast. If you're like most dieters, you've probably already sampled a bunch of different diets and jumped on the bandwagon for various weight loss crazes. Maybe you found that they worked well for a while and then became either unmanageable or too expensive. Or the biggest diet killer of them all, boring. The 5-2 diet is different because it really does keep your life as normal as possible. For two days, and not in a row, you need to be extra specially conscious of what you eat. Otherwise, you're pretty much on your own. You want to eat an ice cream or savour a bacon cheeseburger on a non-fast day? That's okay. Have a cocktail on a day you're not fasting? Go for it. The 5-2 diet takes the part of your dieting life that's about going without and condenses it to about 20% of your life. Lose weight working at it only about 20% of the time? How can that possibly work? Does it work? The 5-2 diet targets a very specific component of weight loss management, metabolism. Causing your body to go without in a regulated fashion actually helps you reset your metabolism and rev up your body's fat-burning ability. When you maximise your body's ability to burn fat, you start losing inches, and mainly in that stubborn midsection area. And the best part is that while this is going on, you're technically only dieting two days a week, so the deprivation part barely even has time to sink in. Add to this that there are ways, at least 150 in this book, to feel less deprived on those non-fasting days, and you have a diet you can stick to and get results you've been craving. Now you may be thinking that in all the research you've done about losing weight, one of the main ways a person can pretty much guarantee they're not going to lose weight is by not eating. The more you understand about fasting and the better you understand it, the more you'll see that fasting isn't starving at all. It's simply a matter of cutting down calories drastically some of the time. While the normal calorie allowance intake for men is about 2,500 and for women 2,000, the 5-2 diet calls for 600 calories for men and 500 for women on fast days. But is it even possible to eat enjoyably on that little amount of calories? It is. If food plays a major role in your enjoyment of life, fasting could actually work well for you. If you can't subsist on protein shakes and carrot sticks, you don't have to. With the 5-2 diet, you can eat food, real food, good food. You just have to monitor the calories your foods harbour and be cautious with how you prepare foods as well as the portions you consume. Each of the recipes in this book is no more than 300 calories and many are even less than that. There's even a special dessert section in the back that will give you low-calorie rewards to look forward to on non-fasting days. Some people enjoy the 5-2 diet so much they make it a lifestyle choice to fast one or two days a week and this isn't a bad thing. Scientific studies have proven that the benefits of fasting go beyond simply shedding excess pounds. An intermittent diet can, among other benefits, delay the onset of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, which may also prolong your life. As with any weight loss plan, it isn't just about what you eat or don't eat. 
Yes, you can lose weight on the 5-2 diet, but you can maximise the weight you lose by adding or upping your exercise. This doesn't mean going to the gym religiously. It could be as simple as deciding to take the stairs instead of a lift, parking the farthest spot away from the store in the car park, walking just half an hour a day. Stick with your plan, add more steps to your life, and you too will see results. I hope the recipes in this book will help you enjoy satisfying foods on your fasting days, as well as help you make smart food choices on the other days of the week. Reaching for plain or sparkling water instead of a sugary juice or soda. Substituting leaner meats for fattier ones. These small steps you take can set you on a road to a healthier, longer-living you. Chapter 1. Breakfast and Smoothies On fasting days, you definitely want to make the most of breakfast. The more satisfying this meal, the easier it will be to make it to the next time you eat. That being said, a bowl of fruit salad is a healthy breakfast, but it's not likely to sustain you until dinner, so it's not a great choice on a fasting day. To stave off hunger, make sure your breakfast maximises protein. Eggs, simply prepared, are excellent sources of protein. Another healthy alternative is smoothies, though you have to be careful with these. While packed with nutrition, smoothies, not the ones included here, have a tendency to shoot up your calorie intake. Carb-heavy foods like cereal, cereal bars, muffins, toast and so forth can be very high in calories, though some low-cal recipes for these kinds of foods have been included here for variety. These types of breakfasts are best for non-fasting mornings. Cinnamon Swirl Pancakes. Total calories per serving, 298. Reminiscent of cinnamon toast, these pancakes are fun and flavourful. The calorie count is edging to the top of the 300 calorie allowance, but this count is based on enjoying two pancakes. Cut it dramatically by having only one pancake and topping it with fresh, yummy berries or apple slices. Makes eight pancakes. Ingredients. Cooking spray. 240 grams wholemeal flour. One teaspoon bicarbonate of soda. Two medium eggs. 235 millilitres skimmed milk. One tablespoon vanilla extract. 2 tablespoons ground cinnamon. Directions. Step 1. Heat a large frying pan over medium-high heat and spray with cooking spray. If you're using a griddle, heat to high and coat with cooking spray. Step 2. In a medium bowl, mix together the flour and bicarbonate of soda. In another bowl, lightly whisk together eggs, milk and vanilla extract. Then pour into dry ingredients and fold together. Swirl in cinnamon. Step 3. Pour circles of pancake batter into frying pan or onto griddle and cook one to two minutes or until edges of the pancakes begin to firm and the batter in the middle starts to bubble slightly. Flip and cook for another minute or so. Serve immediately. That was a reading from the 5-2 Fast Diet Cookbook by Samantha Logan, which includes 150 low-calorie recipes for you to enjoy during your two fasting days. Some of our colleagues here at Penguin are trying it out for themselves and they're definitely seeing quick results and finding it incredibly easy to maintain. Perfect if you have a holiday coming up in the next month or so and want to shed a few extra pounds. That was a little science behind dieting, and we'll soon take a look at the science behind cooking. But first, we have Evgeny Morozov talking to us about his latest book, To Save Everything, Click Here, where he examines how we're relying on technology for too many of life's social, political and personal decisions. Here he is explaining the problem of solutionism. My name is Evgeny Marozov. I'm the author of To Save Everything, Click Here. Uh, it's a new book that uh, tackles the problem of what I call solutionism. 
And by solutionism, I mean um, an intellectual tendency that I detect in Silicon Valley to have a very shallow and unexamined attitude towards problem solving. So engineers and developers uh, in Silicon Valley tend to see problems as problems solely based on the fact that they have very nice and quick technological solutions available for solving them. So, for example, we hear a lot about Google Glass, this new fancy set of smart glasses that will soon appear in the market. One of the selling lines for um, this fancy device is that they will allow us to be consistent in our behavior. They will remind us of just how hypocritical we tend to be, or just how little time we spend with our relatives, or how much time we spend, how little time we spend with our friends. And uh, here you can clearly see that Silicon Valley and its opponent, proponents believe that uh, inconsistency is something to be getting rid of in part because we have the tools and we have the means to accomplish that. I approach it from a very different perspective. I think that regardless of the tools we have, the right way to do it is to start asking questions. Well, isn't consistency a good thing? Is hypocrisy a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Are they virtues or are they vices? Very often, if you think about those issues long enough, you'll eventually discover that in small doses, Things like inefficiency, things like inconsistency, things like opacity, ambiguity, and disorder are actually beneficial. They allow us to become the kind of complex, mature thinkers that we essentially become. They allow us to uh, gain more autonomy. They allow us to behave in very complex social situations where a strive for consistency or a strive for honesty would actually block many of the options that allow uh, social life to go on. So what I do in this book is to try to understand the limitations of solutionism as this dangerous ideology uh, manifests itself in a number of fields. I look at politics, I look at uh, various attempts to solve uh, health problems, I look at how the logic of solutionism is seen in things like education, uh, what are the kind of solutions that are being advertised and what are some of their costs, even if you do assume that the problems they are trying to tackle are worth tackling. So self-tracking when it comes to health, for example, is a very big um, thing in Silicon Valley. And uh, we are being told that we can install all sorts of apps on our phones and we can get all sorts of sensors uh, to monitor how much exercise we do or what kind of food we consume on a daily basis. And those sensors and those apps will tell us how to optimize our behavior. They will tell us that we need to exercise more. They'll tell us that we need to eat different kinds of foods. And all of this as well, but I also think that we need to understand that the kind of reforms that we need to put in place in order to reform or solve the problem of obesity are reforms also of more ambitious structural nature. We need to go and regulate the food industry, we need to build the kind of infrastructure that would actually allow people to walk and exercise, we need to uh, make sure that they have access to healthy food. We cannot just give them the tools and apps and devices uh, and assume that the system itself doesn't need any fixing and then ask them to optimize their behavior within a system that is presumed to be fixed. So uh, when Silicon Valley takes on this problem-solving tasks, uh, what we often see is that we tend to forget about these broader structural reforms and just think about it in a very narrow, small-minded kind of entrepreneurial fashion where all of us bear individual responsibility for our own lives. And while I think that it is important for people to have responsibility, uh, clearly many of the decisions that they need to make 
also need to be influenced by social structures and institutions and regulators. We don't want people to go and examine every single piece of meat that they eat with their iPhone to figure out whether it contains any horse meat. We actually want to have ambitious policy and uh, structural uh, reforms and bodies and regulators that would actually do that job for us. Because if we have to go and examine every single thing we do, we wouldn't have any time to actually enjoy uh, our life uh, on this planet. So um, my broader message in the book is that uh, we have to be more aware of the costs that uh, certain solutions, particularly technological solutions, bring with them. We have to be skeptical. We have to understand that Silicon Valley has its own agenda. Very often that agenda is all about making uh, internet companies look as if they are just equivalents of NGOs. We don't tend to think of Google in the same way that we think about ExxonMobil or Walmart. We tend to think about Google as if they were the some kind of a library or that they were you know, Transparency International or Human Rights Watch. And very often this attitude allows them to get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. And as uh, its technology is spread throughout the world in, uh, in, in the built environment, you know, into walls, into cars, into glasses, I mean, soon this technology will be everywhere. We need to exercise even more scrutiny and we need to be even more critical of the ideologies and of the uh, calls, perennial calls for problem solving and changing the world for the better that many of these companies advance. So in short, that was my book is about. A concise breakdown of To Save Everything, Click Here by Evgeny Morozov, which is available to buy now. We're almost at the end of this episode, where we'll be talking to the author who's written probably the most terrifying alien invasion story to date. But now, back to food. Michael Pollan, author of Cooked, is on a mission to get everyone cooking again, rather than relying on processed food. In this short clip from an interview with the editor of the great food series Penn Vogler, he found learning the science behind cooking and the nutrients in food fundamental to his rediscovery of cooking. Uh, as I studied nutrition science, I learned that this whole obsession with nutrients, good and bad, actually does not um, have an important influence on our health. Uh, the most important thing, the most important predictor of a healthy diet is whether it's cooked by a human being or cooked by a corporation. And if it's cooked by a human being, the odds are it's going to be, you know, simple food. Um, it's not going to have lots of salt, fat, and sugar, which corporations use when they cook. Um, and that even poor women who cook uh, have healthier diets than rich women who don't. It's, so it's, it's really key on the health side and key on the agriculture side. And that's why I decided it deserved a book of its own. And that actually takes us almost to the end of your book where you explore some really extraordinary sort of cutting-edge science that's being done on microflora and the importance of letting... You, you have this wonderful phrase, eating for three trillion, which yes. I really like because the importance of kind of microflora in the, in the gut. And that's something that hasn't really been explored much in kind of diet and nutrition. No, and in fact, we've, uh, we're learning right now that the, that this, uh, the, the microbial community that lives in your body is, is very important to your health. And, um, uh, and it, it perhaps uh, explains the, inc the rising incidence of chronic disease and obesity and that these, these trillions of uh, microbes are, um, uh, are, that we live with um, 
need to be taken care of, and we're not taking care of them. And one of the, the real hallmarks of the industrialized Western diet is that it has been processed to feed us. You know, you're only 10% human, believe it or not. And, um, but we have a diet that's been designed for the 10%, which is to say readily absorbed sugars and fats that basically are, enter the body through the, the upper gastrointestinal tract and leave very little for the large intestine to ferment. Um, and so we're not feeding the uh, the ninety percent, the three trillion, and um, and that's uh, that was kind of mind blowing to me. That there's a different way to think about food. So how would you eat if you decided to take account of all those others? Well, you'd eat less processed food. Um, you would eat more whole foods. You'd eat more plant foods. Uh, you'd eat more fermented foods because these are full of the bacteria that feed our bacteria. Um, so it became a whole different way about thinking and that um, how food is cooked, how is it prepared, uh, has a tremendous bearing on uh, who's, getting, who's getting to eat. And you meet, you meet some extraordinary people. In, I mean, you're, 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 the food that you kind of cook is and, and encounter is delicious, but some of the people that you meet are quite delicious as well. And you have this <laughs> wonderful cheese-making nun called Sister Noella who obviously really let your, you get your hands dirty making cheese with all this bacteria. It, yeah. It uh, sounds well, like an extraordinary experience. Well, you know, the earth section, which is really where I deal with fermentation because the earth is, is a hotbed of microbial fermentation, um, was for me perhaps the most eye-opening and exciting part. And I met this whole group of people that I, that I call fermentos. These are people obsessed with fermentation. They might be working with cheese like Sister Noella or pickling like Sander Katz or uh, brew making like uh, Shane McKay. Um, but they all have a very different attitude toward microbes than the rest of us have. You know, most of us are at war with bacteria, and we've been trained to fear bacteria and, um, and, and to wash our hands continually and keep our children away from, you know, animals. And, and these are people, though, who've fallen in love with bacteria, and they're pacifists in this war on bacteria. And they're, they have a wonderful attitude toward nature. Um, and I learned a lot from them and, and, and gradually came to appreciate that bacteria are um, uh, enormously powerful and can do a lot for us uh, and, and, and can cook for us. I mean, fermentation is cooking without any heat whatsoever. It's, it's strictly microbial uh, food processing. And these microbes can make food that lasts longer, that is more nutritious and has wild, intense flavors. Um, and, uh, and cheese making in particular, which is fermented milk essentially, um, takes you down into this wilderness of, um, um, of microbes, both inside the cheese and on the rind. The cheese rind ecosystem is a very sp special place. And Sister Noella, who's also a microbiologist, has kind of mastered this world. And um, there are flavors that you can only get from eating bacteria. And most of us don't think of bacteria as appetizing. But if you like cheese, they're incredibly appetizing. We love cheese. Yeah. And Sister yeah. Noella, too, is a um, – uh, she, she was a rare food maker that was willing to talk about this, this edge between appealing and disgusting that, that certain foods have. And um, what is that about? Why are we drawn to that? Why are we drawn to the smell of a stinky cheese? She speaks of the erotics of disgust, which is not what you expect to hear from a, a nun. From a nun, no. That was Michael Pollan giving us an insight into some of the science that goes on in cooking, which he talks about more in his book, Cooked. And if you want to hear more about what Michael has to say on this topic, you can listen to the full interview on our SoundCloud channel.
Finally, to end this episode, we enter the world of science fiction and alien invasions. Scientists have confirmed there is life outside Earth and the likelihood of human-like civilizations. For years, films and books have depicted alien invasions, most of them ending with humankind triumphing over these intergalactic intruders. But author Rick Yancey has written a much more frightening story in his book, The Fifth Wave, with an alien invasion so horrifying that it appears that many of us wouldn't survive. Here he is with Danny Hahn telling us what The Fifth Wave is about. Uh, The Fifth Wave happens um, in the very near future in which the ultimate question has been answered, are we alone? And the answer is, no, we are not. Um, It's told from several characters' points of view in which uh, an alien invasion to end all alien invasions happens to the Earth. And what we do uh, as a people and as individuals in response to a malevolent alien attack. One thing I was really, really interested in was the extreme survival situations all the characters find themselves in. And um, I'd just like to know what your top survival tips would be. My top survival tips? Uh, find somebody who's a survivalist to help you. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, we must have water. You know, we can survive for days without food, but you better have a water source or means of getting water. Um, I would have some sort of uh, first aid nearby, you know, antibiotics and stuff like that. Um, it wouldn't be bad to have, uh, you know, a certain skill set, um, how to identify edible plants, uh, maybe an ability to make uh, rudimentary crude weapons to maybe catch some game. But if your question is asking, how do you survive an alien invasion? I'm not really sure because if there ever happened to be one and it's anything close to what happens in the book, um, I would say you need a whole lot of luck more than anything else and a very, very fierce will to survive. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of quite extreme situations the characters find themselves in. Yes. Um, if you were a character in the book, what what would you have done when the first wave hit? Hidden somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I, know I get asked that question, and sometimes it's put as, you know, how far do you think you'd make it? You know, would you make it to as far as Cassie does or one of the other characters in the book? Would you make it to one of the final waves? And my answer is inevitably, based on my luck in the past, probably not. I'd probably, you know, somewhere during the the first wave, which is a uh, massive electromagnetic pulse, which rips through the atmosphere, knocking out all power and and basically pushing humanity back 300 years technologically, I would probably perish in that one. I'd be in a car, I'd be in an airplane going somewhere, and the airplane would fall from the sky or my... um, the most nightmare scenario I can think of is being in something like an elevator and you get caught between floors with a bunch of people and there's no way out and, you know, everybody starts to get hungry. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's one that keeps me up. Uh, was there anything in particular that inspired you to, to write about the end of the world as we know it? As a writer, I love to uh, place characters in very difficult circumstances and then sort of uh, stand back and watch what happens. It's sort of like you know, lighting the fuse and then seeing how big the explosion is going to be. Um, uh, I've always, uh, as a writer, found interest in, in putting ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances 
and seeing, you know, what as a way as a means to explore what we're made of, what makes us different than everything else that we know of in the universe, and what makes you know human beings uh, the best we can be, and what makes us the absolute worst we can be, and that is one of the major you know explorations of the book is uh, human beings pushed to the extreme, you know, survivalist extremes, but also psychological and emotional extremes. And how, you know, it, it's almost like, it's almost like the waves themselves psychologically, you know, take away or, or burn away the facades that we have erected in, in industrialized society for thousands of years now. Um, these things we've thrown up all around us um, uh, to separate us or to cushion us from the demands of the environment in which we live. And that was one of the fascinating things uh, to think through while I was writing this book was um, not so much the terribleness of everything, but the wonderfulness in us in, in situations like that. That was the real, you know, I'm not a bloodthirsty person. I'm very pacifistic, but a lot of, you know, truly horrible and horrible, horrifying things happen in this novel but my focus was never so much that, because if I did, it would be almost too psychologically you know, dehabilitating to finish the book, because it is so distressing psychologically, but rather focusing on you know, those things within us or in the human spirit that enables us to get up when everything else is falling down. And um, you write it from several different characters' point of view. Was there one that you kind of grew mo more attached to, one you enjoyed writing more? There were, uh, you know, that's like asking which child is your favorite, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, there were, you know, appealing aspects of both. I do remember that there were um, some parts where, um, you know, perhaps unexpectedly, I would be relieved when, when Cassie came back and started talking again. I, um, I, I don't think it's doing the other characters a service to say, you know, she was the favorite voice in the book for me. I think part of it was was the, the, the happiness it gave me to have a female character, at least that I felt felt authentic, you know? I'm, I've never been, I've been 16, but I've never been a girl <laughs> that's 16. So the, the, that was one of the challenges that I wanted to, to tackle as a writer is, is doing a voice uh, in, in, in a different sex and, and seeing, you know, just seeing if it could, authentic at least to my own ear and I remember um, being not very far along in the draft and being uh, probably about the second chapter when Cassie actually said something that made me laugh uh, unexpected totally in character if you will and I knew in that moment that uh, at least for me she was authentic she was real she was someone that you know I actually felt as if were was talking to me through her through her journals and um I personally cannot wait for the next one to come out. So I was just wondering, is there any, any exclusive spoiler you can give our listeners or a little peek into the next one? I will say this. There have been many, many readers who are concerned about the fate of a certain major character in the book. Um, I will say that his story is not done. So rest assured, his story is not done. We have also, perhaps we've seen the last of the waves, perhaps the fifth wave is the last wave, but I will say that there, we have not yet seen the depths to which the others will go to try to rid the earth of, their, of the infestation of human beings. 
And I will say that we have not seen the heights to which the human spirit can reach in order to resist what might be inevitable, but I won't say that it is inevitable. <laughs> it may be inevitable. That was Rick Yancey talking to us about his new book, The Fifth Wave. Being in London, everyone here at Penguin HQ would be wiped out in the second wave. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. Don't forget to head to our SoundCloud page to listen to the full interviews featured on this episode and for other author readings and audiobook extracts at soundcloud.com slash penguin-books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter at Penguin Podcast. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.